Right, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast that abducts you in a dark forest and transports you to a wonderland of the best the 80s have to offer. Movies, music, games, television, and more, and returns you back to now, where you're asking yourself, is it 2022 or 1986? We're your hosts. I'm Ben. And I'm Chris. And this is 80s High. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Chris. Welcome back, Ben. We got to spend some time together this weekend. We One did. of the things we did relates oh, yes. to our last episode. It's I'm very excited about all the things. Corey and I lured you into the shiny bubblegum colors that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. Ah. And we played it for a long time. I think I, we, we gave it a rest. Uh, the sun was close to rising as the Technodrome burst <laughs> to the ground. Uh, but what did you think now that you've gotten to play it? You know, I think what you and Corey said about it in the last episode was completely accurate. It's fun. It totally pushes all the nostalgia buttons from the original arcade game, but it's also ultimately a little frustrating like that arcade game. You know, mashing buttons, beating people up, some annoying bosses we had to deal with. That freaking Rat King drove me crazy. Oh, the Rat King was a monster. He was awful. He was the worst. But, you know, it, it, it was a fun you know, refresh of that classic. They did a great job with it, but it's not something I'm going to, you know, look at my Steam counter and be like, oh, I played 300 hours of Shredder's Revenge. Cool. All right. I wonder if it's like Mario Party. Like if you could get like six people in the living room, all with Xbox controllers or whatever your preferred system is and play that at the same time, if it would be way more fun. Uh, yes, agreed. I just it was can't just, do it on my own. It was just two of us. And, you know, to Corey's point, playing one player, no way. Wouldn't be fun. So the other thing we shared since the last episode came out is the trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny to drop, Mm -hmm. the fifth movie from the 1981 Raiders of the Lost Ark Origins. And did you you have some hot takes, some reactions? Gosh, it's been a while since I've watched it. You know, I've never been like a huge fanboy of the Indiana Jones franchise. Like I enjoy them, but I'm not like a diehard. It's not an annual watch, rewatch kind of a situation. Um, you know, after Crystal Skull, I guess the best I can be is cautiously optimistic. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. You know, Steven stepped back from what he was originally going to do. I think he was going to direct. He's no longer the director. But um, yeah, I guess we'll we'll see. I contacted a Indiana Jones super fan that I know of. And I was like, what would you think of the trailer? Okay. And he was, he was very upset about the whole situation. Too much CG for him, mm. which I get as a Jurassic Park purist, even though there was CG originally when like the new Jurassic World movies came out and it was all CG. I was very upset. I kind of get it, but I feel very confident about it specifically because I thought it looked beautiful. A lot of fun action change. A lot of the same tone and fun is there. Um, but the director, you mentioned Spielberg's gone. It's James Mangold now. And this guy was behind Girl Interrupted, Walk the Line, 310 to Yuma, Logan. He has directed some great movies. I like what he does. And so, I, you know, it's no Spielberg, but I have faith that he might be able to pull it out for us. I hate the subtitle, Dial of Destiny. Yeah, we talked about that. We were like, eh, it's a little underwhelming. 
Yeah, what, what, what is it, an egg timer for the oven? Can we get a little cooler than dial? That's not a cool action word. The egg timer of destiny. That would exactly. be amazing. <laughs> Let's make that movie. Where's that movie? Uh, the two of the things I'll hit real fast for you. I did have an itch to rewatch Weird Science this month. Oh. <laughs> which I have like... How badly does that hold up? Oh my so goodness. That's, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to save us a whole episode of 80s High and say this is probably the least holding up property we've even touched on in three seasons of this. I have such like warm memories as a kid. And when you rewatch it, it is perfect if you're like an 11 or 12 year old. And like mm. that's what you were curious about in that time period. It is just troublesome from start to finish. It's got a few gags that you're like, ha but mostly, woof, it takes a crack at everybody. Uh, oh, it's sure. Just, it's rough. It's real rough. For a pretty star-studded cast, too, my Absolutely goodness. Absolutely star-studded. Oh, yeah. my God. Wild. Mm. Uh, but great theme song. I'm never going to give up on weird science. This is a great song. Oh, that's a fantastic 80s little tune. Last but not least, because I don't want to live in homeroom for this entire episode, but I did try for the very first time to play Metroid on the Nintendo Entertainment System from 1986. Right. This is a classic. I feel, I can feel people listening right now bristling with anticipation of like, don't you dare harm my beloved Metroid property. And here's the thing. I respect it for what it did. Atmospheric, a whole new storyline, this idea that you needed to get upgrades to move farther into the game and revisit worlds you've been in to get more stuff. Wonderful. Uh, Here's what I'm going to say. Ain't nobody got time for that anymore. <laughs> yeah. It is so hard. It is so frustrating. It is so, the level design is so simple and repetitive. There's just too much good out there in the video game world to spend 30 hours cussing a screen trying to play this game. This is a trend we've seen with all of these games. It's really challenging to revisit these, even if you have warm memories, because the gameplay is just so inferior to what we get nowadays. Yeah. And the way that they artificially extend games is through either poor mechanics or just ridiculous level design. And so while I can't specifically speak to this game, I 100% know what you're talking about in terms of visiting it. And it's, you know, it's cool that you did. It's a classic that I think that was your only experience with, right? That was it. You didn't play it it as a kid, right? Or else I blocked it out as a child after PTSD from it. Right. (laughs) Uh, Well, good. Could be. Could be. I'm glad we've gotten 80% confirmation from our audience and 20% are like, have just unsubscribed. They're like, how dare you hurt my Metroid? I'm really sorry. We can all have different opinions and we can all agree and disagree. And that's, you know, that's what makes everything so lovely. Exactly. What do you got? So one other thing that I got to experience, again, all my stuff today is for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I read the graphic novel, The Last Ronin. So after we had talked about it with Corey in our last episode, this is that very recent, I think like the compilation just came out last year. Yeah. Uh, No, actually earlier this year, the full volume of The Last Ronin, where basically it's one of the turtles left. It's a post-apocalyptic world and you don't know which one it is because he has one or two weapons from each of the characters. And so I'm not a big graphic novel person, but I will say it was an interesting story. It was obviously well illustrated. It was super cool. The flashbacks are kind of in a a more retro look and design. It was great. And so Ben, when you finally get your copy via carrier pigeon or however it's getting to you. God, (laughs) when will this arrive? Uh, I look forward to seeing what you think about it. I'm really stoked to read it. I think it's going to be awesome. But Chris, we are not here to lament classic Nintendo side-scrollers or 
drop the director's cut of our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode, the extended version. What are we here for, Ben? We have other amazing properties from the 80s revisit. Will you climb aboard my Mercury morphing spaceship and fly out of the atmosphere with me to revisit this property? Neato, these stairs stay in place. They just wiggle a little. <laughs> Whatever that kid said. <laughs> you nailed it. That was the quote exactly. All right. <laughs> here we go. Zoom. We have landed back in history class. Mm. The year is 1986. And I want to ask you, could you tell our audience a little bit about what this movie is, Flight of the Navigator? Yeah, so Flight of the Navigator is a kid's tale about David Freeman. We meet him and his family at a fris- a dog frisbee catching competition. You know how it goes. <laughs> exactly where you stage a sci-fi space movie. It's what every 80s family did. They went to a dog frisbee catching competition. <laughs> oh Right on the waterfronts of uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You don't even have to say this. We can all relate. We were all there. We yeah, know, I know. We all did I know. We all know the trope. Move on, Chris. So <laughs> he doesn't get along with his brother. They go home. And basically, his brother's out late. David wanders off into a creepy jungle-like forest for the middle of Florida to yeah. look for his brother, slips and falls into a mm, ravine, ditch, Something in between. It's it's somewhere between 10 feet and 90 feet deep. Right. <laughs> somewhere in that, he falls down. You see a jump cut. And then he goes back home. And much like in Back to the Future 2, he steps into his home to find out it's not his home anymore. And there are these strange old people living there. And we come to find out he has been missing for eight years and presumed dead. Open and shut case. They had a funeral for him while he was gone. I mean, basically you would. You would have found some way to move on from this tragic loss only for the kid to show up unaged. He's still a 12-year-old kid, but everyone else is eight years older. And it's this fish-out-of-water story where they try to figure out what's going on. NASA is involved. They want to study him because NASA has found this spaceship, this sleek spaceship that ran into a transmission tower. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. The ship lures David to it. With Royce's poises. Yeah, with Reese's pieces, yeah. (laughs) We see that there's some connection in his brain. And David boards the ship and it takes off and he meets Max. Max is the sort of AI persona of the ship. Yeah, Trimaxian drone ship. There we go. And they go on this little adventure together because Max needs the star charts locked in David's brain. So that he can get back home, back to Phelan, and David has to make a hard decision. Does he stay a fish out of water eight years in the future? Or does he want Max to try a risky procedure of taking him back in time? Something our feeble human bodies cannot (laughs) ever hope to survive. So that he can be back with his family in his appropriate time to live a normal childhood. Wait, now don't spoil it. Let's give the reveal if they haven't seen it at the end of like chemistry class. Spoilers, he's a puddle of goo at the end of this movie. He just turns to gelatin and then that it just ends. Roll credits. It is dark. 
And well, and then if you stay for after the credits, there's a whole bunch of ships moving on Earth to get to ready to like destroy it and take it over. Oh my gosh, it's Independence really Day! Yeah, oh, yeah, no. yeah, 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 yeah. It's the same. It's the same universe. It's a shared universe. So it's a great overview. There are several things you said in there. We're gonna revisit. There was an ET reference. We're gonna have to unfortunately do that a lot here. Mm-hmm. You had a Back to the Future reference, which is also sure gonna come did. up quite frequently. Yeah. Um, but let's get to this. I want to put the film in a little bit of context. So this movie comes out in 1986, hmm. 1977, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1982, ET the Extraterrestrial, 1984, The Last Starfighter, 1985, Explorers. 1986, you've got Space Camp, this movie, and Howard the Duck. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that wonder of Marvel filmmaking. Uh, hmm. And then two, li- two years later, 1988, Mac and Me. So this is like this trend of kids encountering aliens or going to space, and it's like smack in the middle. You know, Close Encounters really is like the grandfather. You've got E.T., that's the grandmama. And then all these ones that try and take little parts of those two films going forward. Right, right. So how did this little film launch and to be honest after having read a whole bunch watching the movie and watching the documentary it's still not super clear to me the order of operation of how this movie came to be Mm. do you feel like you got a grasp on it well what i understand is it was started as an independent movie it wasn't with a major studio and then at some point in time it gets attached to disney yeah so it is technically a disney movie but it doesn't have some of the hallmarks of a Disney movie because it didn't start that way. So it's right. like, it's got a little bit of it, but not entirely. Exactly. And it gets muddled like how that all happened. The main production company, Producers Sales Organization, puts up two thirds of the budget, while the rest of the funding came from a Norwegian film company named Viking Film, which by the end of production had gone bankrupt, which is kind mm. of unfortunate. But that sort of explains why we'll find out later some of the filming actually took place in Norway. Well, Disney gets pitched this movie and originally says no. They refuse to approve it. And the main theory, and this is this is just a theory, is that Disney was really nervous about live-action kids' movies at the time because the year previously they had done Return to Oz. Oh, my goodness. Which tanked hard. Have you ever seen Return to Oz? It is unwatchable. It's a fever dream. Awful. It's like the never-ending story, too. It is so weird and uncomfortable to watch. So I get it. They were like, "Mm, I'm not sure. So they send it back to producer sales organization, which makes a deal with Disney to be the distributor. So they'll fund all the money. They'll take all the financial risk if Disney will just help get it out around the country. Mm -hmm. As Disney rolls its eyes and says, well, fine, if we're not going to lose money on it. Okay. So like I mentioned, Viking film, basically any shots of the ship were done near Oslo in Norway. Mm But everything else is done uh, around Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which the crew and cast kind of seem to remember really warmly that, like, you know, there's a lot of downtime around a film set. And in the beautiful, sunny Florida, Fort Lauderdale, like, a lot of friendships bonded and they hung out a lot. They just really enjoyed sitting around on set. Of course. I mean, you know, I've been to Florida many times throughout my life. I have family who live there. And as shooting locations go, I mean, sure, sign me up. It's nice. It's beautiful. There's beaches. There's, you know, a lot of sun. Heck yeah, man. I love it. And I I, I have no doubts Norway is beautiful, but I'm pretty sure it's similar weather to Seattle. In nine months of the year, no thank you. So (laughs) that's all I'm saying. Before we forget this, just the Norway thing, this is sort of the last sort of interesting part about it. So they had to shoot some additional shots of the ship in Norway after principal photography was done, and they work in a ship 
little David actor, whom we'll get to in a moment, all the way out to Norway. So when David is flying the ship, primarily in the uh, Beach Boys segment, when they shoot from him from behind, that's a little Norwegian kid who's got like brown hair that they like pulled in to put on the set of the ship, who had to keep watching what the actor was doing from America as he went you know, left and right, left and right, trying to mimic flying the ship. There's some major body doubling in this movie. Oh, yeah. Right. We got it. We'll get to that one. I know mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about. So I want to talk a little about the crew. So this was Mark Baker's first script he'd ever done. And when he did it, it was called Vanished, which he claims he literally had a dream one night. He dreamed it up. And this was the story that came out. This reminds me a little bit of like the Peo Smurf fight where Baker's a little disappointed in the final product because his dream was a little darker, a little more adult, a little more serious. But once Disney was on board, it got real softened and Disneyfied and and that. In his original story, actually, they rebuild the ship from David's memory. It's oh, not interesting. Like, it's not like melding them. They, it's actually like um, contact. Oh, right. Where they get, they get the, the blueprints. Uh, yeah. Yes, like that. I won't get too much into chemistry, but I will say I can see some of the pieces of that darker original script in like the first half of this movie. Yeah, totally. So that makes a lot of sense. I didn't know that, but I can I see it now. So you may not have heard of this movie or you barely remember it. So it's directed actually by Randall Kleiser. And Randall is actually probably, so he directed Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, White Fang, a surfer cult classic movie called North Shore, The Blue Lagoon, but probably most known for Grease. Grease. He directed Grease. The producers looked at him and said, you're the one that we want. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh my God. (laughs) Now... He was not a beautiful school dropout. Randall actually went to UC Film School. And you know whose classmates were at UC Film School? Mr. George Lucas and George Carpenter. You know who it wasn't? Steven Spielberg, because he wasn't admitted. (laughs) He was not admitted. (laughs) But I thought it was cool in the documentary. Randall was like, uh, back then, like, film was not a serious college major. If you told your parents, I'm going to go study film at school, that you were, like, kicked kicked out of home. I don't think a lot of parents even these days would be super happy to hear a kid say that. Like, that's just the reality. Anything in, like, the fine arts or liberal arts, arts. parents are like, okay, what am I paying for? Listen, I worked (laughs) at a university. This is not a judgment. I have a liberal arts degree. I'm just saying that's still a reality, (laughs) man. Right, right. You have statistical background in this from a university professional point of view. It's a little old, but still not really. No. So I mentioned who wrote the original script, and then the screenplay was adapted by Michael Burton and Phil Janoux. Now, let's talk about the stars. So, first of all, you've got little Joey Kramer, who is uh, the 12-year-old who plays David Freeman. Anything you want to tell us about, uh, at at this time, a young Joey Kramer? Well, I think what's interesting about Joey, and, you know, we'll talk about this documentary more, but uh, that he wasn't really a child actor. I think he had starred in one movie before this. But yep. the goal wasn't really to be an actor. Like, he and his mom were like, it might be just kind of fun, like an adventure to be in a movie. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I feel like he has the chops for it, but he's just this very charismatic little kid. And he also has somewhat of an adult sensibility for a child. I don't know if he was 12-year-old, like his character, or close to it. But, you know, he had some adult sensibilities to him, I think. Oh, yeah. And so so he, he – and I love that he's growing up, like, in a theater household. So his mom worked in the theater department at the University of British Columbia. They're, they're in British Columbia is where they live. And actually, he, I think one of his, like, his first theatrical appearances was he was in, a, in their production of South Pacific, which I thought was kind of cute. Uh, it's actually – it's a longer story for another podcast, but it's actually how my own parents met was in a production of South Pacific. 
many, many moons ago. But I love his theater background. And they said, you know, the casting director in the documentary talks about they auditioned every child humanly possible in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. It was like hundreds. It's insane. And like, who wants to sit there and listen to 400 kids read this script? I mean, that's, I mean, good on you. You earn a badge. I mean, if you're in casting, that's probably all you're doing for the most oh part. God. But I think for casting, it's the magic of like finding the right voice, face, persona for this movie that you want. I can see it. It's it's almost like gambling. Like I gotta I gotta find the winner. I gotta find <laughs> the, the, the one that channels what we're looking this for. This is my horse to bet on. Well they said the thing they really chose him on was crying. That he could cry on command. Yep. And as we saw in the movie, kids gotta cry a lot. I don't remember him breaking down so much, but he cries all the time. And he does a great job at it, but like it's an emotional story. Heck yeah, man. It is. I we did make a never ending story to reference and he's actually an extra in the never ending story. When Sebastian is like being chased around Vancouver, which is like technically Gastown, he's like one of the extras who like runs away, you know, when the bullies are chasing him around the streets. So that was kind of cool. Did you have some names of people who auditioned but were not selected? There's a few famous names in there. Oh yeah. So who couldn't cry well on command? Who who did not get the job? Chris O'Donnell, Robin <laughs> wasn't able to. Oh, but and can you imagine? Joaquin Phoenix, the Joker. Oh my gosh. The DC connection oh between them. God. Robin and the Joker didn't make it. Oh, that is kind of an interesting Batman connection. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So here's the crazy part. Who plays the ship? Who voices the ship for the second half of the movie? Well, it's everybody's favorite actor, Paul Mall. Paul Mall. Oh, oh, not the credited role. We're talking, of course, about Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Voices the ship. But okay, this is an honest question because I don't remember. His voice changes intensely throughout the movie. Like, it doesn't sound like Paul Rubens in the first half. Why? Do you remember why that was? Well, at first, it's, I mean, this is a scientific ship. It is collecting biological specimens from around the, I guess, universe or galaxy to study them. And so it has this very serious persona. But when it has to mind meld, if you will, with David oh, to get its right. star charts back, it also picks up some of his human emotions. And Pretty much instantaneously, he becomes very fun and silly, and he starts yeah. to laugh. And then you hear that iconic Paul Rubens laugh, and you're like, okay, that's <laughs> – if you didn't know who it was up until that point, which you wouldn't, when you hear the laugh, you're like, that's Pee Wee Herman. Done. 100%. So he does a great job at it. Clifton Young plays Bill Freeman, who's also in The Craft and Glory. Glory's a great movie. This is the dad, right? Yeah, the dad. Uh, Veronica Cartwright plays Helen Freeman. She's in The Birds, yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Witches of Eastwick, and for me, Alien. I mean, come on. A lot of people. We talked about Alien. It's the first episode of season two. Yeah, come thank on. you for the call out. But like, it's so hard to see her in this normal mom role because all I can think of her in my head is like when she's ugly crying as the alien comes towards her about to eat her, like on the yeah. ship. Different range in this movie. I mean, she's still sad, but it's still a different range of <laughs> It's not uh, like a horror movie. sad. It's like, a, <laughs> are you really my son sad? Like, it's, it's confusing. But it's not as confusing as the last surprise cameo in this movie. One Miss Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. Who plays a young Carol McAdams, who has some kind of job at NASA, question mark? You know, I've seen she's an assistant, she's an intern, she's a a worker. Like it, her job is unclear because she 
as far as we can tell, follows a robot that delivers food. So if you have a robot delivering food, why is she there? It delivers both food and children. I mean, it does have multi-purpose robot. Her role is obviously somebody to allow David to confide in and form a connection with at this scary NASA compound where all they want to do is poke and prod and try to delve into his brain. She's the one person who's an adult figure who is not mean to him or wants something from him. She's just kind of, she's nice. And she ultimately helps him make his escape and get to the ship. And also a little flirty. And she's much older than him. Um, She's like, you know what? You're cute. I mean, I don't think that's, I don't think she was trying to flirt. Like maybe I get a hot date with this underage minor. I don't think it was anything like with that. Come on. psychopath with alien blueprints in his brain. I think she was using a little bit of her charm to like, you know, make him feel comfortable. Trying to comfort him a little bit. I think okay. he definitely had a crush on her. That is clear. But I don't think oh, it yeah. went both ways. Even like an authentic blush smile he gives like in the movie when she talks to him. He's like, oh yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. She's going to be a columnist on sex advice someday. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so last but not least, the producer, who's Jonathan Sanger, he actually makes a cameo in the movie when uh, like NASA meets the family by a canal, this random canal that they all seem to frequent a lot, telling them that they need to keep David longer and you know probe his brain and whatnot. He's like in a lab coat, and it's just kind of a fun little cameo of the producer uh, getting to be in the movie. For history, anything else you want to talk about the cast or the crew? You know, there's one other face that I recognized that I had to like go back deep into the recesses of my brain and ultimately had to look up because I couldn't make the connection. And that is the main kind of scientist, uh, Dr. Lewis Faraday. Oh, yeah. He does look really familiar. Yeah, it's played by Howard Hessman, and he was on WKRP in Cincinnati. Now, look, we both no. grew up in the Dayton, Cincinnati area. Really? So that show had like a special connection because nobody was making shows about Cincinnati, Ohio. They were all about New York and California and stuff like that. So he was like one of the main, I guess, disc jockeys on this radio show, and that ran in the late 70s, early 80s. I appreciate the Cincinnati shadow because, you know, we just learned with Spielberg is from Cincinnati and like but never made a big deal about it. We got to get every little Cincinnati ping in there that we can. That's right. So there's two sort of firsts that happen with this movie that actually make it sort of notable and like worth talking about on the podcast besides just mocking some very odd production choices in the movie. One <laughs> is its music. So this movie yeah. has the honor of being having the first entirely electronic score. On a synthesizer, which is interesting, unique. And this isn't just any musical composer, right? Who is it? So this is Alan Silvestri, who may better be known the year before composed Back to the Future, which is wild to me to go from something so iconic, you know, dun, 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 It's orchestral, right? It's yeah. like, you know, it's like John yeah. Williams. It's all of this like orchestra. And then you go to a 100% synthesized soundtrack. Totally wild. It's a big swing. I said there were two things that make this pretty remarkable for a film. One, Mm -hmm. yes, the music. The other one is the spaceship. Yeah. Christopher, when you rewatched Flight of the Navigator just now, do you feel like you saw that ship's material somewhere else around this time? Well... Several years later, though, but right, you know, exactly. there, there's a couple different renderings of the ship. There's a, a model that you can clearly tell, and there's some that look like CGI, special effects. Yeah. And in fact, what we learned is that this is a kind of prototype, if you will, for the special effects 
of the T-1000 from Terminator 2 Judgment Day that came out in 91. So about five years later, but the effects that were developed and groundbreaking for this movie of having the ship change shape, like become more aerodynamic as it's going to go faster, that effect, and it's kind of reflection mapping software that creates it. It's this chrome-like look. You know what we're talking about if you remember T2 and just that vision of the T-1000, you know, stepping out of that fiery semi-truck and changing shape and just, it's super cool. Like, it's the same technology. It's so awesome. And it's one of the reasons why we do this, why I want to do this podcast so much is like, hey, you know that thing you love and you think that's awesome? You need to learn about the thing that inspired that thing. Everyone knows the T-1000. But you don't have the T-1000 without Max's ship in Flight of the Navigator. And you don't have Max's ship without a Tide commercial in 1985. That's right. So so the director, Randall Kleiser, he had always wanted to do special effects ever since he saw the Red Sea get parted in the film The Ten Commandments. Hmm. It just so happened with this movie came around, his brother worked at Omnibus Computer Animation, his brother Jeff. And Jeff had just done this commercial for Tide Detergent, where the Tide bottle, like, morphs into the United States at the end of the commercial. Right. And he's like, hey, could you do some more, like, morphing stuff, like a like a spaceship? And Jeff's like, I can do it. Now, I'm not going to get into the details, because I don't want you to fall asleep at your steering wheel and cause a car accident. But if you're, like, a computer engineer or software engineer and you're really into this kind of thing, there's a YouTuber who I really like, and he, like, breaks down film special effects a lot. His name is Alan Melikjanian. Uh, he goes by Captain Disillusion, and he does a 45-minute breakdown of the specifics of how this technology works. Wow. That is not for here. That is for there. If you want to go look it up, it's actually pretty interesting if that's your gem. It's homework. It's extra credit. Right. Now, part of the ship, though, is not computer graphics. It's actually the stairs. So when you hear the little water sound and the stairs come down, individual stairs, uh, that's typically stop motion animation. It's like hundreds of different shaped little stair cubes that they mold between shots, move them a little bit, stop the camera, move them, take a picture, uh, which is pretty cool. I kind of like that. It was awesome. And it looks a little dated, but what's also really cool is once the stairs are there... And it looks like these floating metal stairs. They're just floating there through optical illusion. Like there's an arm in the ground, but the way that it's shot makes it look like it's floating, but they just have the supports that are, you know, out of view of the camera, which is super cool. Yeah, that was actually impressive. Even watching it, I'm like, how, when he's stepping on the stairs, I'm like, how are those in the air? That's a really cool camera trick. Yeah, great effect. So there are a couple physical ships as well for some of the work. And what I loved is they hired a magician to help figure out how to make this ship move uh, because they were like, oh, we'll do the whole ship CG. Well, back then it was 30 grand per shot for each yeah. ship. So like, all right, we got to we got to we got to build some ships like they did in the olden days. And I say olden days, you know, a lot of the tricks they use this were old, old, old Hollywood filmmaking techniques with mirrors and things. And they brought it back in the 80s to make this ship sort of seem to fly and float, which I think is really cool. So two were made. Uh, There's a lighter 700-pound ship that was just for the flotation sequences when it's kind of flying around. And there's a 1,450-pound ship, which had the full interior that's aluminum that David is interacting with inside. Mm. The one last little fun Easter egg I just want to put out with the ship before I move on from it is when Joey first, Joey Kramer, playing David, first enters the ship in the NASA hangar. The camera is sort of panning at his feet, and then it kind of pans up with him as he looks up in the ship and he's about to go in. And there's a tile 
on the floor that is the flux capacitor from Back to the Future, which, again, we know the composer had just done the year prior. And, and even the whole plot. I mean, there's a lot of Back to the Future in this thing. For sure. A few more just fun little bits of aluminum that have been left on the NASA experimentation floor that I want to pick up in history class. The director noted the hardest part of making this movie is because Viking films in Norway was all about making a sci-fi action shooter with like a big government shootout with the spaceship. And then you had like Disney who had a bit of a stake in the game who wanted a family drama. And he's trying to report to everybody. And that was very, very, very difficult for him to like direct a movie that made everybody happy. If you've ever had a couple different bosses, try to please them both with different agendas. Oh it ain't easy, especially when they're movie studios. And you can see that. Like, this is, this is you know, we'll get into this in chemistry in a minute, but the tone changes from, like, shot to shot in this movie. Like, it is, mm. it is kind of all over the place. Again, like I said, one of the reasons that Joey Kramer got selected is because he can cry on command. And I didn't know this, but you were only allowed to use kids for four hours a day on a set for child labor laws. So he's like, I needed a kid who could do what I told him to do right then. We couldn't wait hours for the kid to cry. Right, yeah. I mentioned Fort Lauderdale. One of the reasons they did is the weather was so reliable, and they thought the blue sky and puffy clouds would be really pretty, reflecting on the mercury aluminum outside of the ship when they do all that. I thought that was neat. And the last little thing I had in the production, there's a stunt double we didn't mention in here. You mentioned there's an interesting stunt double uh, crossing the train tracks, actually. Yeah, so there's a few scenes, one early on when he's crossing, coming sort of toward the camera, if you will, and then one when he's coming back. You probably wouldn't know if you're watching it, but it's actually, I think, his stunt double, and it's a woman. Yeah, just a young woman, same height, same build. Dressed like him, crossing the tracks and back, wouldn't know the difference because he's completely obscured in shadow, and you know, it's just one of those things of movie making that half the time you don't know unless someone points it out, and then you're just like... Oh, now I see it. I see what you're up to with your movie-making tricks. That's everything I have for history. Before we jet off to the NASA laboratories of jet propulsion, is there anything else you want to touch on in history class? I think it's just important to say that this movie didn't do well at the box office. Oh, yeah. It wasn't unsuccessful because there were like these massive blockbusters. I feel like we talked about that with... UHF, Weird Al Yankovic's movie that came out amongst like eight Titan movies at the same time. This was not the case here, but it definitely has a cult following that has grown since then. And this is not an uncommon story for movies that are very cherished and beloved to this day where kind of a flop of the box office, but definitely through VHS, rental, and now streaming services find a huge second life, which is, uh, it's kind of cool. Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate it. And the second life is a great intro to chemistry class. Chris, will you climb aboard this Pee Wee Herman piloted spaceship with me? And we, we will zip out of here of NASA class and go see what the great universe in the stars has to offer us in the science of this movie. I don't trust you because you're telling me this is 4.4 hours, but I feel like it's going to be eight years when we finally get to chemistry class, and I'm ah, not a fan of that. you've an episode with me before. Um, <laughs> pay no attention. Pay no attention. This will be in Phelan minutes. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> compliance. Compliance. So we're here in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, some form of chemistry. There's a lot of science we could use here. And you gave a good intro that this movie did not do well in theaters, but has hence become a cult classic. You told me this last weekend, but could you recount for our listeners what you remembered of this movie? Yeah, I know I saw the movie 
but it's one of those murky memories where I couldn't tell you if I watched it at home, at a friend's house, if I went to the theater and saw it when it was released. But what I do recall is at some point I was watching it either at home or at a friend's house and some adult figure walked into the room and I think it was a male adult. So it is either like my dad or like my friend Nathan's stepdad. It was somebody like that. It's during the Beach Boy scene where he's singing and they're kind of dancing and Max is spinning around. And I just remember that person saying something to the effect of like, this is corny, turn it off. It was something like that. That is the most vivid memory I have of this movie. Oh my God. And so coming into it was pretty much a fresh rewatch. Nothing much stuck other than I remember him being on the ship. I remember the robotic eye that came down. And I think I had a vague recollection of when they stop off at that gas station. Like I remember them doing that, but I didn't remember much else beyond that. What about you? Yeah, it's funny because like the same scene was stuck with me, but like a positive memory. (laughs) It was that Beach Boys scene is one of the most iconic of the whole film. And I think why here's here's why, you know, so so for those of you like, oh, Beach Boys scene, what are they talking about? You know, so they finally let loose and have a little fun and they oh, oh, Max gets a hold of radio because David's like, we need some tunes up in this up in this shizzy. And he's like, all right, I can I can spin it up. And so when he gets on the radio, first is like beautiful classical music. And David's like, that's not music. I'm no. like, wow. But 1964's I Get Around by the Beach Boys comes on. And this 12-year-old in 1986 is like, now that's music. And so they jam out to him in their flight. And here, okay, here's why I think that scene sticks. is because back in the day, fair listener, children's movies did not have pop music in them. It was just like an orchestral score. And you didn't get like... I think that's a pretty later development in children's movies to have like music that you would hear on the radio, like fun music in it. I don't really know what I get around means in this context. I mean, it's questionable. I mean, we could really, is he flying around? Is this getting back to Sarah Jessica Parker's future column in the newspaper on Sex and the City? I don't know. It's questions. That's right. Um, <laughs> the part I was bummed about, the other part that's, that I remembered as a kid was loving the aliens, like the little monsters that are also on Max's ship. Yeah. And especially Puck Marin, which we'll talk about a little later, the little pet he gets. But rewatching it just this past weekend, the alien sequence is like 90 seconds long. Of it's the super en- short. Of the entire hour 40 movie. I thought it was so much more about the aliens on the ship, and it is not. I thought the lion's share of this movie, like an hour of the 90-minute run, I thought was on the ship. Yeah. And we're going to find out that's not true. Yeah, it's the other way around. So... I have here, I'm really excited about this, Chris, because we got to watch this movie together. We've never done that before. I don't think we have. It makes me both excited and nervous because I feel like we, we already blew all our best content live in the living room watching it. What I want to preface the audience with is this. So you might be listening to this because this is one of your favorite childhood movies. And you're like, these jerks are going to just oh, sit no. here and trample on our movie. We, now we're not going to do that. You already shredded never ending story. There's not much more childhood you could destroy for our audience. I already stamped out joy of that movie. That is true. <laughs> the only thing I'll say is this because Ben and I like to joke around. We kind of watched this with the sensibility of mystery science theater 3000. Also 100%. an episode that we did in season one. Don't have the episode number, but go check it out. You've Googled. You can find it. That's right. 
so we kind of watched it a little bit making jokes. Like the whole thing about the radio station where he turns it on and David's like, no. And then he switches it again. He's like, are you kidding me? And I looked at Ben and I said, rule of threes. And then the third station is what he wanted. So it's just like, right. <laughs> we were just making like little quips like that. Or there's one where he, um, the younger brother, who's now the older brother, kind of does a little noogie on David's head. And I was like, hello, McFly. Hello. Like, <laughs> it we looks were just, just like it. Oh, my we God. We were doing like goofy jokes like that throughout the entire thing. So all I'm saying is we didn't watch this with this pure, we're just going to sit there and not yuck it up. No. And watch this movie kind of approach. So if we are sometimes a little bit snarky, just understand that's maybe why. That's kind of our personality, too, is the is the situation. So to be you, fair. You touched on this in history class. Chris, why, why in the holy mother of goose does this movie open with a Frisbee dog competition? I have no idea. It doesn't make any sense. The dog never really has a big presence in the movie. No. I think this is the start of what we will see where this movie feels like a bunch of vignettes stitched together. And it's up to you, the watcher, to make some sense of all of these different sections of the movie that perhaps the screenwriter in a fever dream put together. Because I think other than the sight gag of you see the Frisbee, the silver spaceship. Exactly. And then you see a dog jump up and clamp its teeth on it. I think it was purely for that sight gag. I really do. And that sight gag, you get beaten over the head in the first 20 minutes of the movie where they're like, is this the spaceship now? You knew this was about a spaceship. <gasps> Maybe this is the spaceship. Like first you get the Frisbee and then like a shadow falls over the Frisbee tournament and everyone looks up. Everyone's looking up and like, oh my gosh, and wonder. And what is it? And it's a blimp. And you know what? Here's the Good funny thing. Good blimp. I did a totally awkward Google. I was like, where are blimps? Plus 2022 in Google. Because you never see where blimps anymore. Where are blimps? Where are blimps? <laughs> and here's the thing. There are only three blimps currently in operation in the United States. Because they're crazy expensive to fly. There's like a, a shortage of helium. So wasting it on a giant balloon in the sky to sell tires, I just don't think is right, a right. thing anymore. Good year at the Super Bowl is like the only time you see a blimp. So it does it with the blimp. It does it with the Frisbee. And then there's like a water tower like a, at yeah. night. Like they drive by and you're like, oh my God, oh, it's a water tower. And even this is a quick catch. Later on, David is wearing a Hindenburg t-shirt. Like, if Mm. you pause, it is not just a Zeppelin, but a Zeppelin exploding on fire. Okay, so it is the Hindenburg. I I don't know if we ever landed on that. I had to go back and look several times, and it's got, like, the little flames on the back of it. Like, it's, wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So how does, like, Chris, how does David learn about his crush? Well, I mean, we don't get a whole lot of scenes. I frankly don't even know why she's in the movie, because... When they come home from this frisbee catching competition, which the dog did not win, by the way, no, no dog trophy in hand. Loser dog. She rides by on a bike and like says hello to him. And roughly the next scene or two, he's upstairs in his room watching her on a sailboat because they live right by the water. Of course. Through a telescope. So he's, he's creeping on her. Yeah. Okay. So that like rubbed us the wrong way. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, kids today have like their social medias, their social meds, and they're looking yeah. at photos of each other and their videos. You can go to their Facebook wall. You can go to their TikTok channel. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so People are the, still creeping. Let's be real. Kids be creeping is what we're saying. Back in the day, you only had a telescope, which is just wild. 
my bigger thing with it is it, it has no place in the movie. She literally never comes back. Right. Like when he comes back later, if he like ran into her as now as like a teenager and like, I don't know, he, like, she's got a- She was the intern at NASA or something yes. like that, which she'd still be too young for it. Well, no, Meg, actually, no, she'd actually be about the Maybe, right age yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if she was the NASA intern, that would make more sense. But it ultimately goes nowhere. And I'm like, for a movie that already needs more cohesion, adding in yet another loose thread is not super useful. Like, he never says to Max on the ship, like, I got to get back to my own time because I've got to, I'm trying to get a girlfriend. Like, never even references her. Like, it is weird that she's included. Yeah, there's no specific payoff. And so, yeah, it's just odd choice. Well, there's a very loving exchange between him and his younger brother when he runs into the forest to look for him right like hey buddy it's time to come back it's dinner time no what does he yell when he can't find his younger brother in the forest it's definitely that whole brother relationship where they're always at odds and hitting each other and calling each other names i don't was it scuzz bucket i can't remember what yeah the name was bucket is one of them that's a pet name so basically, like, yeah, the younger brother jumps out of the station wagon to go play with some friends, and he hasn't come home. So, like, David has been asked to retrieve his younger brother in the middle of the night. And that's when he wanders out into this very lush, almost rainforest surroundings. And yells in the middle of the darkness while he's looking for him, get back, Jack, I've got a gun, to his oh, eight-year-old right. younger brother. I forgot about that. What? Have you ever warned a sibling you couldn't find that you were armed, like, with a real weapon? No. No, no one has. This is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So he comes back from being gone for eight years. He is immediately taken to a medical facility. There's plastic sheets all around. It is E.T. He even looks, you said he looks like Elliot in E.T. Well, yeah, at one point I looked over at Ben and I was like, is this kid giving you some Elliot vibes? Because like he's got the dark hair and just something about like his facial expressions. I mean, they're not dead ringers for each other by any stretch of the imagination. There was just something about him that reminded me so much of the actor who played Elliot. Yeah. And of course, Henry Thomas was cast for that role because he could also hit those emotional ranges too. And so again, I, I just think they were chosen for some similar reasons and had just like just enough similar features that I was just getting some strong Elliot vibes. Oh yeah, totally. It never came up as intentional. I never read this. I, it's just feeling like they saw so many other 80s movies and they were just like, let's do a little of that. Let's do like, they saw Back to the Future and they're like, time travel. That's cool. We should put that in. And they're like, oh, E.T., he should have like a little alien he connects with that's like kind of fun and like he'll, he'll get along with. And like, oh, um, Close Encounters. What if the kid goes up in the spaceship and like disappears for a while and nobody knows what to do about it? Like, there's just so many elements of other properties at the time. It's It feels awkward. Well, okay, let's step back a little bit. This movie does do things right. So it does. Thank you. We're coming out hard with some criticisms. What do you think does work well in this movie? Because it does do things right. It does. I will say, I do feel like the production value is actually pretty good. Like it is, mm-hmm. it feels like it is shot well. As an adult, it paces well. Like as a kid, again, I thought it was more ship and less like build up to the ship. But like, right. it does pace well. Shots are well framed and well timed. Nothing lingers uncomfortably long or shoots so fast that you didn't catch what the heck was going on. Uh, I would say most of the adults like play their roles well enough yeah. for a kid's movie yeah. at the time. And the last one, and then I want to hear reactions. What you've got to this is I, I do think the ship is awesome. Yeah. Like, they do interview the artist who, like, got picked up at a job interview by Randall. He's like, show me your sketchbook. I love it. You're hired. And he, like, didn't even get the job he was interviewing for. He came up with all these different designs. 
And they kept talking, you know, it wants to be liquid and mercury and reflective and amorphous. And I think the design comes out cool. Like, it's elegant and it's fast, but it's also, like, when it transforms to that spiky version for first for a first-class maneuver. Like, the ship is cool. I like the ship a lot. Yeah. What about, what about you? What does it do well? No, I agree with all of that. I think it does all of those things super well. You know, I would almost argue that the pace is almost too fast sometimes because they're trying to get through so much yes. stuff that it just ke- kind of keeps moving quickly. And we don't get to, like sit with anything too long because it, it, it just takes this like, okay, now now this, now this, now this. What I will say though is I think I enjoyed the psych out moments at the beginning with the frisbee and the blimp and the water tower. Oh, I thought God. those were like cool little psych outs. I thought that was awesome. Uh, I think they do the fish out of water aspect really well. I feel like we are a little bit confused along with David and I think Joey Kramer who plays David does a good job of yeah. being confused yeah. and then really scared. Like that whole scene where he like, he's in the house that's his, but it's this old couple now. And they're like, son, what are you doing here? And he just curls into a ball and sits on the stairs and just starts crying. Yeah. Yeah. And he just sells it because like, what would you do in that moment? If all of the sudden everything you knew from seconds ago, minutes ago is completely different. And what does he say? Like, I want my mom or something. Like, it is really heartbreaking. That would be terrifying. He's a great actor in it. Yeah, he does a good job. And then, like, when he's in the hospital, he reunites with his family. And his, like, his little brother has become his big brother. So he's like, I'm your big little brother. And just, like, that interesting dynamic of how that would change a kid. And I think the older actor who plays the brother is actually really good. Like, the younger brother version in the, you know, the normal time, oh if you God. will. The little snot. is super obnoxious. So obnoxious. But it's almost like you can see this kid having to grow up and grow from this awful tragedy. He actually ends up becoming shaped into like, you know, this good kid. And he actually has some of the heart of the movie as well. Like he's the one who cusses a lot, which of course, you know, I was like a smart mouth person. So that was great. Especially a smart mouth child is very funny. That's right. That's right. Um, there's also that great scene where like, you know, cause he's, his original timeline is 1978 and NASA puts him in this like bedroom for kids and they look, they Ooh, like yeah. want to give him all these creature comforts of like toys and stuff like that. And he flips on the TV and it's a music video and he has no clue what a music video is because they weren't around back then. No, so like, not it's at all. kind of stuff like that, that I think was really well done. I loved the mystery of the first half of the movie. That was totally captivating and interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. Since you just mentioned it, his little like fake bedroom, it's almost like they put up a zoo pen for an animal at NASA. They're like, what would right. a kid who got who lost in nineteen eighty six want in a room at NASA headquarters? So in his room they've got the Cobra Water Moccasin from the G.I. Joe 1985 toy line, the Transformers Insecticon Shrapnel, and a speaking spell. Did you say Insecticon or Decepticon? It says Insecticon. Oh, Insecticon. Like a six-legged okay. bug. It is a Decepticon. Oh, a Decepticon, but I guess it Insecticon. Is an Insecticon, Decepticon. That's intense. Freaking Transformers. What are you doing to us? What are you us? doing with us? And to help figure that out, there's also in the room a speaking spell, uh, which I, ironically is maybe most famous from E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which is part of the, you know, the machine they use to call E.T.'s family back. I watched a video, though, that was joking, like, 
Really interesting that NASA would choose the bad guys for G.I. Joe and Transformers, like bad guy vehicles. Like they were really kind of showing their cards a little too plainly. I was like, oh, that's funny. (laughs) I mean, you really would have to pause the video and study hard to see what all is on that bed because it's a quick shot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's cool. It's a nice little throw. Nice little Easter eggs. It's cool. Yeah. Other 80s, when he like climbs into Ralph, the little vehicle that like delivers snacks, which yeah. also wasn't Ralph the nickname of the practice puppet on Elf? You're right. It was, Ralph was the uh, the practice Elf. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So when he's rehearsal riding, Elf, rehearsal Elf. Elf. Yeah, right. That's what it is. So when he's riding in Ralph, sneaking over to the hangar where Max is hiding, the music that is orchestrated at the time sounds a lot like Beverly Hills Cop, which is kind of fun. Yes. I mean, it's not totally like dun 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 dun, dun but it's like it's close to that. It's pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You made the great observation at that moment of like when he's sneaking over and he goes in the hangar and he like walks into the ship. Where is everybody? Where are all the adults? I said that they were upstairs in the break room that Linda had a birthday party. And so they were all up there singing happy birthday. Because <laughs> there's birthday. this lab where there's a spaceship that NASA <laughs> is studying. There's no military here also. That's what's Zero. interesting. Like NASA yeah. would not be studying you this. Wouldn't Sorry, have it'd be the military. No. Literally, there's no security. There's no guards. There's no scientists walking around. It is vacant. <laughs> And so what would make it that way? Birthday party. It's the only explanation. I mean- It's the only thing that fits. Jump a decade ahead to Independence Day and like think of the alien craft they have at Area 51 and like all the scientists and layers of military and security. This is oh, in yeah. one random airplane hangar with like a chain link fence between it and the road. Yeah, absolutely. Ridiculous. Um, I thought this was a fun little like just observation as we go through. So when he David Fritz gets in the ship, sits down, Max pops out, and yells at him a bunch of stuff. In Bulgarian and French, he yells, attention, believe me, sit down, attention, sit back, listen to me. Just so you know. That's great. We're introduced to the aliens once they start flying around. Did you have any reaction, thoughts? How do you feel about the different little aliens that are on the ship? I will say as like puppet aliens go, you know, compared to let's say Star Wars, which came yeah. out years before this. Yeah. They're pretty much forgettable. Like nothing really stood out to me as like, that's a cool design. I love that. I mean, they were different from each other. Fine. And then there's one where he like looks into this cabinet or like whatever. And this giant eyeball opens and you just hear this like, it's a screaming, right? Which is, it's very, it's too on the nose. It goes, I, 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 I. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. That that was weird. But it's a giant eyeball. And that was terrifying. So as a kid, the one that terrified me was the, it eats the hat. Like he leans in and it eats the hat. It's kind of mm. a jump scare for a kid. And he's right. like, oh, that could have been your head, David. So they didn't design them, but the puppeteers for all these puppeteers had just done Short Circuit the year before. They were the puppeteers on Johnny Five, which I thought was kind of neat. And actually one of the puppeteers was the voice right. of Johnny Five too, which is cool. That's awesome. As a kid, I really liked Puck Marin, like the little pet alien that he like befriends and then actually steals and i felt bad that he was stealing it but then we learned that the alien's home world blew up from a comet what else has he got to live for he's, he could live in a cage with peewee herman in space or he can live in fort lauderdale and enjoy fireworks okay maybe give him a better life the only other fun fact about the, the aliens i want to mention is there's this sloppy gross tube worm it looks like really wet bubble wrap and it actually is covered in ky jelly and vaseline we learn in it max says oh don't get too close to him he has a cold 
but in the original script, it's it's actually supposed to be a um, an intimacy animal. Uh, but they had to Disney soften that up and said, "Oh, don't get too close. He has a cold." Mm-hmm. That's all you have mm-hmm. for the sex worm. If it's something, I mean, it doesn't look like it. Like that's the weird thing. Like it's an odd choice to put in the movie because right. it just it looks like a tentacle. It looks like you know if you were at the like the seafood area of your oh grocery <laughs> store. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. It looks like a, a like a octopus tentacle that was left out unrefrigerated <laughs> for a couple nights. I don't know. It just looks yeah. And flying around there. Okay. You and I were talking about this, and I want to know now, like 24, 48 hours later, if you've been able to figure this out, where are they flying to in the last third of the movie? Where are they going? So my understanding, and I honestly had to look it up. Now, again, this could be the fact that we were being a couple snarky riff trackers, or it could have been that it wasn't well described in the movie. But my understanding is they're trying to get him back home but they don't know where home is yeah because despite the fact that he has all of these star charts of the vast cosmos in his brain they do not know how to get to fort lauderdale they don't have google maps he doesn't know his address because his family moved right and so a lot of it is him trying to find his way back but he ultimately has to decide do i stay in this current timeline or do i travel back in time because like he actually communicates with his brother the brother sets off fireworks they see it they're able to zip over there the ship is coming down the nasa goons are all showing up nasa goons the guns in their hands are replaced by radios no wait that's et um so the nasa goons show up the parents are there and david looks out at his family and he's like i can't do it max get us out of here and he flies away from his family So he finally finds him and realizes, I'll be a lab specimen my entire life if I stay here. I will be that fish out of water. So he decides, Max, you're going to send me back in time to the origin point. The whole reason Max didn't do this before is because humans are trash. We're just garbage. And we cannot, unlike Marty McFly, we cannot withstand time travel. We will just turn to... The ectoplasm that is scraped off of the Dewey Decimal <laughs> oh, System God. card catalog in Ghostbusters. So he is, he basically is like, I will take the risk because I can't live in this alternate timeline. I can't live in this future. I need my childhood back. It's a bold choice. I mean, paid off in the end because right. unlike what I said snarkily before, he doesn't get turned to goo. He successfully makes it back. He doesn't make it back. Everything's okay. Everything's back to normal, except that he's an alien pet now. His adult woman stunt double recrosses the train tracks <laughs> and he gets home. And then he just shows up and it's 4th of July and he gets on. His family is in the marina. They're on a boat ready to set off fireworks. Oh, David, come join us. He gets on the boat. And he like says something nice to his younger brother who has this surprise yeah, like, like reconcile. They're like, I'm sorry. Big smile on his face. Right. And then he opens his book bag and the Puck Marin is oh. just there, which apparently is now going to become full on E.T. because they're going to have to hide this alien life form <gasps> yeah. from his family. Uh, Secret of the Navigator is the sequel mm. where it's just him, just shenanigans of hiding, like Puck Mary getting into trouble, like in school. It has to flee, but womp womp, it has no family to come rescue it because they're all dead. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It, yeah, it turns out David is a terrible caretaker and the Puck Mary like tries to escape and like calls 
calls Max back to pick him up and take him to Phelan. Or it goes Gremlins and they don't follow the three oh, rules we talked about of that. Right. Puck Marin care. Right. Max leaves Puck Marin with David, but he never told him like the rules of taking care of Puck Marin. Yeah, so now we've got a gremlin scenario on our hands. Yeah. Uh, like we said, this movie is an amalgamation of a lot of other 80s movies. I do want to say there's a, a couple little Easter eggs here that are fun. First of all, the gas station where they stopped to ask for directions, that was shot on Burt Reynolds' ranch randomly. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a fun little shout out. And the other thing, when David's parents pull up to the home, at their home at the beginning of the movie, after the riotously exciting Frisbee dog tournament, on the radio is playing You're the One That I Want from Greece. Yeah. And the movie is set originally in 1978, which is the year Greece was released, actually. Which, again, the director of this movie directed that movie. So right. it was his own little Easter egg. That's all they have for the Jet Propulsion Labs at NASA uh, for our chemistry class. Is there anything else you want to comment on your rewatch of this film? Well, so there's two things I want to mention. One is that, you know, we've compared this to some other movies. I would also argue this has some of the DNA of Big. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, Big comes out afterward. So I'm not suggesting it pulled from Big. But what it shares is the idea of this kid who's kind of alone on this scary adventure by himself, right? Tom Hanks's character, Josh, becomes an adult, now has to navigate this unknown world. And now you have this kid who's out of time, and he kind of is on his own. I think what's tricky about this movie for me is that he doesn't have a friend or a friend group to follow with him. Yeah. He kind of makes this journey solo. At one point, he's talking to Carolyn. She's, again, that intern, lab assistant... A uh, food delivery Sandwich person at retriever. NASA. Yeah, what is she doing? And then he's got Max on the ship. You know, earlier on, he kind of has a somewhat connection with the police officer who, you know, rescues him and takes him home. And then he's got his brother in the alternate timeline. But, like, he never really has that person to go with him. Whereas, like, in Big, Josh had his best friend who still was there for him. I found that part of it interesting, but also... He's even more alone than Josh is in, in Big, which is a little it's a little terrifying no, to think about. It's a really good observation. And if you want to learn more about the movie Big, you can go back to season one, episode 10 of 80s High to get the full download. But you're 100% right. I mean, his his bestie not only is there to like support him through it all, but also is like often his reality check of like, right. what are you doing, Josh? Like, come on, come back to reality. And then I think the last thing I want to talk about in chemistry is about what didn't work. And I think... What was challenging for me is this felt like two separate movies that got smashed together. And perhaps now we know why. Because we had this movie originally being made by, was it Viking Entertainment? right. The original screenplay is a little bit darker. And then Disney gets brought in and it's like, whoa, do you not understand who we are? We need family friendly. We're the house of mouse, tone it down. It's literally at the halfway point. The first 45 minutes, you had the mystery of what happened to David. He steps foot on that ship around the 45-minute mark. And the second half of the movie, we finally get the on-ship part, which I call the Disney part. Oh, yeah, okay. Because this is where he meets Max. They have their little altercation argument at first. They start to become friends, but they're still an odd couple. And then they do the mind meld and they, they get along. But... There's not a lot of cohesion to the movie. I already mentioned it feels like a bunch of vignettes stitched together. But then you get this really weird tunnel shift. In my memory, this movie was mostly on board the ship. Yeah, right. And it's really 
at best half the movie. And so that was surprising to me and frankly a little bit disappointing because I liked the first half for one reason. I liked the second half for some different reasons. And I felt shortchanged on both ends, if that makes sense. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Either. 100%. I want more of this like dark mystery. Well, if we're going to have this fun on the spaceship, like you said, why is it 90 seconds? Yeah. Here's some aliens. Anyway, so now we're going to go <laughs> Here's some aliens. hang out at a gas station way. and make fat jokes at the, <laughs> the, the, at the Dom Hillbilly, yeah. the country bumpkin. And we're just going to sit there and have an extended, that guy's dumb and overweight. Yeah. And it was not okay. No. And then, oh, we're going to fly the ship over Tokyo. And you know what Japanese oh people boy. like to do? Oh, Pull boy. out their cameras and take photos of people. It started to go into this really cringy area. And I'm like, yeah. what is going on with this what movie? What is happening? Yeah. It was all kind of all over the place. Well, we've learned a lot. So I think we need to hit up the cafeteria, see what Sarah Jessica Parker has prepared for lunch today at NASA. And uh, I will meet you back to the future of where this movie went after the 80s and contemporary culture. Sound good? Compliance. Compliance. He's learning spelling with Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. L-R-A-I-N. That is correct. She's teaching her brother with Speak and Spell. H-E-R. That is right. They're learning new words with Speak and Spell. But don't tell them they're learning. They just think they're having fun. Speak and spell for words, speak and read for stories, speak and math for numbers. From Texas Instruments, they make learning fun. I'll tell you, I didn't think the Puck Marin nuggets were as good as I wanted them to be, but, you know, dipping a little bit of ranch, it was tasty. That's so dark. It's dark because they were burned dark because their whole planet was exploded. So they were already... It's true. They were overcooked. But it's a good finger food, which is also funny because I'm pretty sure it was a finger puppet. So, hey, yo. Speaking of compliance, this movie, Flight of the Navigator, it receives mostly positive reviews. Rotten Tomato currently has a score of 84%, which, having rewatched this, did you give it that score from what you remember, or did you watch it recently? Is all I'm saying. I'm not trying to hate on the movie, but I feel like it should be a little more balanced. I will say this. I've looked through comments on uh, YouTube videos, on IMDb. I wanted to see what other people thought. Because again, I felt like maybe we had a, a slightly jaded experience. Sure. And I think a lot of people's love of this comes from their childhood. They loved it as a kid. And a lot of the reviews I saw had the word underrated. A lot of people felt this was an underrated movie that didn't get its due when it came out or maybe even just in the avenues of nostalgia as we re-experience it these days. So I saw that a lot. Definitely not a lot of negative comments. It's pretty much all positivity. Yeah, totally. Which – What's surprising, and it was a little reality check for me. I'm like, am I just being cynical here? Like, everyone seems to love it. No. Also, are people who love it more likely to go comment on it? It's one of those things. I don't know quite where it lands. So, the LA Times said the biggest plus was it's entirely believable, normal American family. New York Times described it as definitely a film most children can enjoy, which doesn't feel like a review. A film most children can enjoy. Definitely. Definitely. Most. I got to sit on Let's that. Let's like for two a bit. qualifier words. Yeah. Uh, People Magazine declared it out of this world fun. Empire gave it three and a half stars, saying it was well made enough to keep the family happy, but it certainly won't challenge them. Which oh. is funny because for a spaceship, it never leaves Earth except for like two seconds when they 
Right. Go up 20 miles. Just get us out of here. 20 miles. Straight. I didn't say straight up. Variety seemed to be the harshest from what I could find. Was more critical announcing that instead of creating an eye-opening panorama, Flight of the Navigator looks through the small end of the telescope. Ooh. It's pretty harsh. But as far as like written positive commentary, it seems to really focus around like the special effects and like how great Joey did playing David. Awesome performance. Yeah. Did a great job. And I think Looks what, great. what helped make it such a cult classic and how I encountered it so many times as a kid is the Disney Channel just re-ran this thing over and over and over and over again. I mean, this is back, you know, back in the day when you either had network television or you had cable. There were no streaming or satellite or any of that stuff. And stations like TNT and USA and AMC and Disney Channel re-ran the same like five movies all the time. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I saw Encino Man on TNT. Over and over and over again, <laughs> growing up. I'd My God. <laughs> and so this was always on Disney Channel. So you could always catch like parts of it all the time. Right. You and I have joked about a couple of um, sequels. And this this movie is not without attempts to make reboots, remakes, sequels. The oldest I could find was 2009. Could you find anything before 2009? Nope, that's what I saw. Okay, so it came out in spring of 2009 that Disney was was looking at it to remake it. Brad Copeland was writing it, and Manville partners David Hoberman and Todd Lieberman were going to produce it. Three years later, Disney hired Safety Not Guaranteed's director Colin Trevorrow, probably more recently of fame for bringing Jurassic Park back. He's the director of all the Jurassic World movies. And writer-producer Derek Connolly to rewrite the script. They lost the rights to Lion's Gate at some point in this decade, in the 10 to 20. I don't know how or when, but... I guess they sat on it too long, and so it goes up for option, and another studio can take it? So Lionsgate sits on it, and then again back in 2017, Disney comes out that somehow it's gotten the rights again. It wants to reboot it. Not remake. Reboot. Right. And it's in pre-production with Joe Henderson from Lucifer. So he's writing the script, and he's working with the Jim Henson Company, which that's a good sign. That's a good name to have attached to it. So... In November of 2017, Neil Blomkamp tweets that his studios has begun developing a reboot. Neil Blomkamp, District 9. I mean, I love Neil stuff. Neil was actually tied to doing like an Alien 3 at some point, which had me really yes. excited, but it was going to ignore. Like a true... Yes. Yes. Uh. Yes. Like Hicks and Newt wouldn't have died in the crash and it was going to be a whole new... Man. Neil right. just has mm. such a cool eye for science fiction and i wish i really wish that one would have happened but it didn't nothing came of it and then all up until last september september 2021 it was announced that the remake was back in development with bryce dallas howard which i love this like i couldn't find this but i wonder if this is it so colin trevorrow right was was tied to doing the remake at some point in 2009 right he directs bryce dallas howard in jurassic world and I wonder if they're chatting on set like we are. Like, what were your favorite movies? Just like throw a few out. And he's like, well, I really loved Flight of the Navigator. And she's like, oh my God, so did I. And he's like, well, I was going to reboot it, but I'm not going to do it. You should do it someday. Because she's getting into directing now. She's a, big, she's a great director. She's an award-winning director. Mm. I would love if that happened. Here's something in this research I didn't know. Do you know who Bryce Dallas Howard is related to in Hollywood? Only through the research I found this out. Who is it? She's the daughter of Ron Howard. Yeah. Childhood actor, adult director of such things as Willow, Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, tons of other movies. I had no clue. This is a daughter. 
She's got the chops. She's got the upbringing, the DNA. I'm curious to see what she can come up with. I mean, Howard's done some very imaginative, you know, well-made movies. Oh, yeah. So um, I think that would be interesting. And I understand that she wants to do a a female lead. Yeah. So what might happen? The, The original director was asked in the documentary... And he doesn't want to come back to it. He loves what it was. He lo- he thinks it's a timeless story about family and relationships and the brother and the family coming together. And he feels like that's what makes it keep working years down the road. It's a timeless sort of the nugget of the story family works. We're going to get here soon to the documentary. And that was the sense I got when talking to him about a remake. He's like, uh, it had to be just the right thing. And you could tell he had a lot of reservation because a lot of reboots, remakes don't work, which I completely agree with. Yeah. It does take that rare thing. So it almost feels like if somebody's going to do it, you might need a new person at the helm because they're not going to be stuck in the trappings of what I made back then and what I have to make now to set it apart, make it different enough. Like a fresh perspective is probably the best way to do it. So it makes sense. Now you referenced it. I don't have anything else to get into before Life After the Navigator. Do you have anything else for Contempo? Just a random uh, connection I saw, but I couldn't find anything. So Donald Glover, speaking of children of 80s stars, um, Donald Glover, uh, under his, you know, Childish Gambino performance persona, released an album in 2013 called Because the Internet. And one of the songs on there is called Flight of the Navigator. No way. I was hoping there'd be some like hidden meaning or reference. I watched the music video. I'm pouring through some of the commentary. I'm looking at websites. It just seems like it's probably evocative of a thing rather than referencing that thing. Yeah. I think Donald kind of likes pop culture references. And so this is kind of like a fun little nerdy Easter eggy reference, but there's no like outward reference to it. I think it's just more like, when you hear Flight of the Navigator, it evokes a certain idea or thought, which yeah. he used for the song. So, yeah. Well, that's kind of fun. I didn't know that. That was a good find. That's a really good find. Yeah. That's all I had. I think, you know, we, we need to get to life after the Navigator. We've talked about it enough. Yeah. And I never thought in the course of doing this podcast with you that we would visit Roku Channel once, but twice. But here we are back at Roku Channel. We're totally not sponsored by Roku Channel. See, I watch it on Tubi. I saw this on Tubi. You watched it on Tubi? Yeah. You're just making streaming channels up now. It's a thing. I promise. Well, I came back to Roku, and Roku tried to say, hey, do you want to pick up where you left off on ALF? And I said, no. And I went to Life After the Navigator, uh, which is this documentary, kind of documentary. It's not really a documentary. It's like a half documentary that came out in 2020 that's written, directed by Lisa Downs. But it really largely focuses on actor Joey Kramer, again, who played child 12-year-old david in the movie and mm-hmm. i'd say it's like half kind of fun insights in the production of the movie and half of like joey's life right before during and largely after the movie and i might be looking too much into this but my understanding is lisa has done at least one other life after movie and i think her approach to this is revisiting some of these movies of yesteryear and catching up on where things are now And I can't help but wonder if she had this idea for the movie and then it ended up becoming much more of a Joey Kramer story because of his life yeah, and how he managed to make his way through it all. So I I don't know if that's for sure because it does open up on the let's revisit and talk about what made this movie great. But you're right. At least half of it is about 
Joey Kramer. Yeah. I mean, well, I would say the main focus is on him. So yeah, like half half or less of this documentary is like what you think of a making of documentary. Like here's some fun production stories and how it got off the ground and here's how we made the ship look like it was flying. They got most everyone to come back for the interviews, except yeah. very obviously Sarah Jessica Parker is absent. By the way, she apparently has no memory of making this movie and was like, it was just a paycheck. I took yeah. the job because it was a job to have. So right. sort of th- there's no warm memories for Sarah Jessica. I don't want to recount the entire documentary, but I will say that Joey was born on a hippie commune named Delirious Joe August Fisher Kramer, which he sort of like laughs about that that's his actual birth name. And kind of right after being born, his dad skips the scene. His dad is not present. And sort of all the trouble that befalls Joey Kramer the rest of his life, he attributes back to his father not only not being around, but later very aggressively showcasing he does not want to be a part of his life at all. Very sadly so, yes. I feel like you, Christopher, have the tact on how to like, talk about this. I, I don't have a smooth way respectfully to like not get into the details, but also try and not be so obtuse as to talk around it. Like, how do you get into this? Yeah, it's very heavy. So around the time he's making this movie, apparently Joey is stealing things. Yeah. Like, and I guess he was doing it on the set. Yeah. And again, I think a lot of this is acting out from abandonment, not having control. And so you do things that are sometimes not adaptive behaviors to exert some control over your life. So he was doing that. He was taking drugs. Yes. I believe he was drinking. And after this movie, again, the point wasn't I want to be a Hollywood star. I want to be the next big movie name that's, you know, everyone thinks of. He went back to like a normal life at high school. He was bullied. Yeah. He was teased for being in this movie. This poor kid cannot get a break. So he just dives further into this life of living on the edge, harder drugs, more alcohol, and effectively becomes an addict. His mom has to kick him out of the house. He's living on the streets. Uh, The cycle continues. He's in and out of rehab throughout his life. This poor guy struggles. Despite how just sad and depressing it is, there is a through line of hope in that he seems to have gotten his life back together now. Yeah. He's put back together. He's successfully in rehab. You can see him working through the process. But through some parts of this, he's in rehab while they're recording while they're him. shooting, yeah. He's recording a lot of his own experience uh, through some very heart-wrenching video journaling. Yeah. What I appreciated so much about him is how he's so willing to be vulnerable to everybody. Yeah. A kid who went back to school and was tormented for being in a movie, has decided I'm still going to do it. Yeah. Because, you know, ultimately shame lives in secrecy, in silence. So if you put that out there, it is a form of working through all the hardships. But you're right. He tried to reach out to his dad in his teenage years, and the dad said some horrible things to him. We're not going to repeat on the show, but absolutely awful. Effectively, stop living. I don't care. Yeah. Is really what it boils down to. It is harsh. But he ends up reconciling in a way and reaching out. He actually lives with his dad for a while and is with him in his like final months of life. Yeah. Just the fact that he's willing to put himself out there like that and tell his story and not sugarcoat the reality of it, but try to be somebody who's like, you can do the work and he's giving back to other people who are going through the same thing. 
as much as this is like going to punch you in the gut. And I told Ben, I was like, well, I cried like at four or five different parts. Oh my God. It's such a moving documentary. It's, it's heavy. But yeah, I just, I appreciated that he was willing to do that. And, you know, this reunion, I think, was a great experience because the people who were involved with it that came back seemed to really love this movie. Oh, my God. Absolutely. We didn't talk much about the actor who played the police officer. That guy was so <laughs> freaking excited. He was jazzed. He, he was, was so just jazzed. super jazzed. And just to see them kind of come back together and like the guy who played the younger brother, the guy who played the older brother, like yeah, they're all there. Right. And it was just cool. It ended on a positive note. You feel like his life is on a good trajectory. He's getting back into acting. So that part of it, like if they made this movie, this documentary, even like three years ago, it would not have been at this good of a point. No, It'd no. still be a big question mark. I mean, it always is with addiction, but it just felt hopeful. So anyway, it is... Very hard, but I feel like anyone who's struggling with or knows someone struggling with addiction or with that kind of a thing, like you're going to get something out of this. It's not easy, but you would get something out of it. I don't know if that was succinct, but that was my takeaway from (laughs) that whole trajectory of his story. I didn't ask for succinctness. I asked for diplomacy and tactfulness. Okay. And I feel that you achieved such... It is, um, yeah, I mean, it's worth the watch. Strap in. I mean, it's not like Flight of the Navigator where, like, let's get all the family around with popcorn and watch this tonight. It's not that sort of watch. Mm -hmm. You know, it is sort of like the stereotyped story of, like, the child actor in Hollywood and, like, their life goes off the rails afterwards kind of thing, which, like, I didn't know how much of that was, like, true or just, like, hearsay of, like, oh, kids in movies and that happens. But this, like, really did happen. Oh, yeah. It is really heartbreaking. And sort of the documentary itself is kind of like Flight of the Navigator, where it's like two different stories. Like, Flight of the Navigator is like this serious sci-fi and also this Disney movie. And the documentary is like, here's how we made this charming film. And also like, oh my God, what happened to Joey? Like, it is two very different movies. I was just thinking that exact same thing. And I was like, but it's never commented on in the documentary. Like, I don't think there was awareness on their part, on anyone's part, that that was a thing. But as we're talking about it, I was like, wait a minute. This is just like the movie. You're absolutely right. That's so funny. Totally. So we're about as contemporary as you can get. I mean, this documentary came out two years ago. Last fall was announced the potential of the Disney Plus remake with Bryce Dallas Howard. I'm not sure how much more we can actually cover in Back to the Future slash contemporary culture. I think all that's left to do is to put this 700-pound spaceship on a crane and see how it weighs out uh, in math class and see how this film holds up today. All right. Let's do a first class maneuver to uh, math class, man. <laughs> to math class. Chris, you came on this journey with me. This was, you know, as far as like homework goes for our projects, this was just one film. You know, I could have given you an entire IP. I could have given you the greatest, most well-known director in history. Catalog. <laughs> Maybe a 900-page novel. There's a lot of things I could have given you that I didn't. Um, so is, this a you sideways, could... is this a sideways jab at all of the things <laughs> I've made you experience? I'm attempting a first-class maneuver. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's first-class, man. That was okay, obvious. Painfully maneuver. obvious. <laughs> Maybe it's in coach. I'm, attempt- I'm attempting a coach maneuver. I learned a lot in this, which I'm going to get back to. Yeah. But I'd like to kick it off in math class. You know, How do you feel Flight of the Navigator holds up in 2022? Yeah, and I feel like everything I'm going to say here is what we've talked about. It just might be in like a a wrap-up kind of a way. Yeah, please. I definitely understand why this movie is beloved by many. 
It's a kid who takes an adventure of a lifetime, gets to pilot a spaceship capable of wondrous feats. We mm. get that curious mystery to solve from David's eight missing years. We get aliens, a snarky robot, and evil NASA. Evil NASA. Add in some 80s synth music, some sweet special effects, and it's off to the races. I just wish I knew where this race was headed. Ooh, yeah. Because for a movie about a navigator, it certainly meanders, zipping Ooh, around good. and looking for a place to go. We don't land too long with any of the characters, so by the time we get to know them, the story moves David away. And I wanted to care about him, but they were already shapes in the rearview mirror. I feel like Navigator's biggest success is its imagination. We've talked about that a lot. But its greatest flaw is not capitalizing on that strength. Because as we mentioned, it's like two movies smashed together, each with satisfying elements that I wanted to explore much more. And the only glue that holds it together is Joey Kramer's performance, and he does a good job of being this believable center of the movie. He is convincingly scared, confused, excited. I feel like along with us as the audience. Yeah. Uh, but as I mentioned, he's all alone, never having that friend or friends to share the experience with. And I think that's part of why it doesn't feel like fully cohesive. You know, personally, I would not call this a classic, nor would I say it's underrated. I think it is correctly rated. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is a fun revisit with missing pieces and blemishes, but managing to stay in the center with no huge stakes to worry about, but no huge payoffs to suck you in the feels. But look. We don't always have to ugly cry like when E.T. says goodbye to Elliot. We don't always <laughs> need that. Be good. So I guess my final thought is like, frankly, I would love to have seen this movie in slightly more capable hands. Yeah. To paraphrase Max, I think there's a superior story hidden in somebody's human brain. Superior brain. And I just feel like wouldn't that version be even more compliance? <laughs> <laughs> that's always, what I got. That's what always I got. so written, so well written. No, it's that, that is a wonderful revisit of it. I think, you know, like I said, I respect the movie for what it did as firsts, right? Like we wouldn't have the T one thousand without the Max ship. Like mm -hmm. its CG was was huge, groundbreaking for film. Although no one really ever talks about it, the score trying to be fully synthesized was. Bold, that was a new thing no one had ever done, and we became more comfortable with electronic music and film because of that, probably. So that's mm -hmm. good. And and I do feel like it's generally fun. It's like generally well shot. Like again, the the, the principal photography on it is good. How how shots are framed and how long they take and how the actors block around in those scenes, it is pretty well done. What I'm trying to say is like it's not it's not a bad movie. It's just not as good as your seven year old brain remembers it being. Mm. <laughs> I think also like it you just can't overlook how much cherry picking from other kids and aliens and sci-fi is happening in that decade into this movie. It feels like this is my like old man yelling at clouds on my front lawn thing, but I feel like in 30 years, this version of this podcast, whoever's doing this about properties now is going to look at all the stuff of teenagers with superpowers and be like, well, that's obviously a Harry Potter ripoff. That's obviously a Marvel ripoff. There's so much these days in the last decade of right. teens discovering powers as they come of age. And that's just ripped off so much. And I feel like this is one of those versions of the 80s, of E.T. Mm. and Close Encounters. I had to say, as you mentioned, 
is not perfect. There's fat shaming. There's mocking of rural folks. In the rural folk area, you can visit the Indian village, and we're not talking about the country. There's mocking of Japanese stereotypes. Now, this all, fortunately, and I say that very carefully, fortunately, all happens within like five minutes of the movie. It's not an hour and a half of hating on different minority groups, uh, as other properties have. Weird science. But like, it is there, which is problematic. And like, the last part of it is, is now that I've seen the documentary, it's hard to look back at Flight of the Navigator without knowing what Joey was going through in real life and knowing Mm. where his life was headed after this film and, like, not feeling really sad about that. Like, I can't overlook that watching the movie. That, you know, the movie is all about him trying to, like, reconnect with his family, his mom and his dad, and knowing that, like, he also was trying that in real life and could not succeed in it and how destructive that was. Like, that's hard. That's a bummer. That's a super bummer. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, I'm glad we revisited this. I learned some things. Again, go watch that, like, 45-minute documentary about computer engineering. It is pretty impressive how they made the ship. But much like David in the film, I just wish I could go back to my childhood and watch this movie through those lenses again. Chris, thank you for jumping aboard this wild spaceship piloted by Pee Wee Herman. (laughs) And visiting ah! this property. It was it was fun. It was it was kind of cool to go back to it and see what it was all about. Absolutely. And as the movie ends with Max zipping off to his next mission from Phalon, can you tell our listeners where you and I will be zipping off next on our mission? So Ben, so listeners, I think by now we all know I enjoy things that are creepy, unsettling, mildly terrifying, and intriguing. <laughs> You know, people tend to ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. So stop it, you. So say it with me three times, everyone. (gasps) Mannequins, mannequins, mannequins. Wait, why'd you say Beetlejuice? We're not doing Beetlejuice. And no, I don't mean mannequins like that other Sex in the City actor, Kim Cattrall. No, we're not talking about those things. Oh my god. For the next episode, I want to revisit a music video. One that blew my mind as a child. Cool. And haunts my dreams as an adult. Oh no. One filled with disembodied mannequins and animatronics twitching to the beats, DJ scratches, and synthesizers, they're back, of one jazz pianist, Herbie Hancock. What? I could have never seen this coming. Oh, yeah. The next episode of 80s High, move aside Kevin McAllister, because we're turning our television (laughs) dials to MTV to learn all about the inventive and captivating earworm Rocket in the enigmatic, unsettling music video that made it such a huge breakthrough. Look, if you had said, Ben, I'm going to give you a million dollars if you can guess my topic, I would be a million dollars cheaper right now. Like, that's that's awesome, though. What a cool pick. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Oh, I mean, fun. to your p- earlier point, we've talked about this off mic. I have chosen massive topics this season. Oh, true. Yes. Huge, sprawling Time-spanning, decade-spanning. I took us 40,000 years into the past, Ben. You I did. That was pretty to, amazing. That was pretty I impressive. To, I need to cool it. I need to go small. I need to go interesting. I've wanted to talk about this music video because it is so bizarre and so intriguing. I love And so I thought, this. what better time than now to take a little dive back into Rocket? I love this choice. This is going to be so weird. boop 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 Oh, it's so good. <laughs> 
Well, I'm very excited for this. I can't wait to get into it. Great choice. This is going to be cool. All right. So grab two turntables and a microphone because we're going to rock it in to Herbie Hancock's masterpiece music video and song on the next episode of 80s High. See you later, Navigator. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. <laughs>